You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. Welcome to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, on Westwood One's podcast network. It is Friday, March 16th, and I'm telling you, it cannot come soon enough. I am ready for the weekend. Um, As you guys know, I've been working all week on this project of connecting the dots between DACA, the border surge, the suspension of immigration enforcement, and the worst drug overdose crisis in America that the political class is misleadingly calling an opioid prescription crisis to ignore the border aspect of this, which is the main aspect. I have reams of data information. 2200 Word Essay is my first installment today. I want to link to that in show notes today, even though we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to save that for next week. This will be our fourth installment of the Meet the Candidate series. Today, we're going to be talking to Chris McDaniel, a senatorial candidate in Mississippi. Um, You know, a lot of you have told me you want to hear from him. I asked you who should be our next candidate. And we've only had House candidates. Frankly, there are very few good Senate candidates. Um, It's hard enough to get good guys in the House. The Senate is really tough. Um, As we're speaking now, nobody is speaking out for us. There is an omnibus bill they're going to pass. And the only question is, how many bad provisions does it put in? Uh, Essentially, this is like having a, a massive blaze and one side coming in with a hose or a torch of fire as the fire hose instead of water and the other side saying hey how could i help you out so where is the immigration open border sanctuary city agenda is a national crisis with ms-13 and drugs over and beyond the typical immigration issues we have that dwarf anything with school shootings or anything not only are they not addressing it they're using the actual fire of open borders as the solution um you know, I hear Donald Trump, even the president, is, is making calls, asking for them to have some sort of short-term DACA thing. We'll touch on that next week. And now for our guest. Um, you know, Chris McDaniel is someone I've known for a little while. He is not new to most of you, unlike most of the candidates this cycle. Uh, he ran for office in 2014 against Thad Cochran. Um, probably came the closest of anyone to ever... Uh, winning in a Senate race against an incumbent. He won the first round. Second round, he clearly won the Republican vote. They registered a bunch of Democrats, a lot of irregularities there. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that. Lots of people feel burned about a stolen election in Mississippi. Um, and I know many of you have strong feelings about that. You remember that. And uh, he you know, previously was in, or still is in the state Senate, been there for over a decade. And he originally announced he was going to run against the sitting senator. Now, he switched his, his race to an open seat because, ironically, Thad Cochran, who probably wouldn't have been in office if not for the shenanigans, uh, would be Senator Chris McDaniel now. Uh, he has finally resigned, as many of us thought would happen, that he wouldn't serve out his term. 
and now there is an open seat. And to be clear, that open seat is going to be filled not in a primary, but in a jungle election where both parties are on the ballot in November. Um, and then, you know, the top two finishers will go to a runoff shortly after that. So he has switched to the open seat. And a lot of people are very excited. A lot of people have questions. So with no further ado, uh, it's a pleasure to bring Senator, State Senator Chris McDaniel to the conservative conscience for the first time. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me, man. All righty. Well, yeah, I'm great. it's great that we finally got you on the show here. Yeah. Um, First off, maybe we'll work backwards rather than starting with the fundamentals. Um, why did you switch races? Um, you know, originally you were going to run against Wicker, Senator Wicker, the right. incumbent. Then an open seat opened up. You're switching to the open seat. What's behind the switch? It, it was a combination of several factors. And uh, I think the first primarily is that Mitch McConnell has his fingerprints all over these schemes in Mississippi. He's made it clear he doesn't want me there. He's made it clear anybody but McDaniel, and he's down here trying to manipulate uh, our uh, appointment process. And so that's the first thing. It just irritates me that he would be so inclined to keep me out of the U.S. and that he'll engage in these shenanigans again in Mississippi. The second thing is, is that we feel like, as you alluded to, that we won this seat rightfully in 2014. We know that night we won 59% of the Republican voters in the state, 59% against a 41-year incumbent. But for other shenanigans, but for the Democrats crossing over, being pushed there by the most vile, vicious accusations imaginable, uh, we would have been successful. So we look at this as a continuation of that fight in large degree. And what we ask is that we be allowed to fulfill or complete the remainder of the term we fought for so aggressively in 2014. And look, at the people of Mississippi send me up there, and I believe they will, if they see that I'm not fighting for them, if they see that I'm not standing the ground for conservatives, if they get tired of me or upset with me, then they can bring me home in 2020. But we just see this seat as rightfully one for conservatives. We wanted to re-engage and take it. And then lastly, Daniel, for the first time in a long time, we can actually have a unified party around a conservative. We don't have to repeat the mistakes of Alabama. We don't have to allow them to treat me like Mo Brooks and some conservatives so hard that he has no chance. Right now, I'm the only Republican in the race. If we coalesce around my candidacy, if we consolidate our monies and our powers and our research around our candidacy or my candidacy, then we avoid the bloodbath. We avoid the intra-party conflict. And if we avoid it, the Democrat loses big time in Mississippi. But if the establishment brings the fight here, then they risk this seat. So the ball's in their court right now, not ours. Wow. Uh, so there's a lot, lot going on there. First, important point, just to reiterate, um, this would only be two years, not six years, because you're running for the remainder That's of a right. special election. Um, and that seat, you know, that, that is always set. Um, the, the classes of senators are always set. So that expires in 2020. Um, so you're telling voters very transparently, look, you know, if you don't like me, you don't have to wait six years, two years, you could throw me out. Um, so the other thing you mentioned, and this is this is a very interesting point and think about, um, you know, there's a lot of turmoil, civil wars in the party. And inevitably, what winds up happening is when the establishment guy wins, conservatives are so revolted by Democrats because they actually truly believe in what they're saying. So they always wind up coalescing and you wouldn't have problems in the general. When it's the other way around, um, that's when we have problems. And you're saying it's not that you are scared to take on the much harder 
uh, challenge of going after an incumbent. It's that you're saying, look, now there's an open seat. Why don't we come down? You know, you could campaign for Wicker and McDaniel or not campaign for you, but everyone's happy. You get the existing incumbent. You get a new conservative. um, You could unite. And if this is really about having viable candidates and winning and not losing, shouldn't we all be happy? Is that the gist of your your argument? It's a a win-win proposition where the establishment uh, and conservatives don't have to throw all this money down here in the Mississippi fighting for a seat we rightfully won in 14. That money then can be used elsewhere to shore up seats we need to shore up or to take seats we need to take. But ultimately, absolutely, to me, all we've heard for the last decade is how these intra-party battles are problematic. And the establishment says, please don't challenge, please don't challenge. Well, we've turned the tide now. We're saying, if you really believe that logic, then allow us to take this seat, consolidate right now around my candidacy, avoid the bloodbath. Let's not repeat Alabama. Do not repeat Alabama again. And we can win this thing outright. But again, the ball's in their court. And Daniel, to your first question, were we fearful of the Wicker Challenge? Absolutely not. Dan Cochran was the most popular and unbeatable politician in the history of our state. No question about that. And the poll numbers uh, made that clear. And we felt like we might have won that seat. So the idea that we're leaving the seat because we were afraid, that's nonsense. We're leaving it because we have uh, a better recourse here or a better option for everyone. And that's to, uh, that's to get a conservative in the U.S. Senate. No, absolutely. I mean, Wicker is still relatively new. I mean, Cochran was a fixture in the state. Half the state was named after him. It would be like someone challenging uh, Senator Byrd in West Virginia in a primary back in the day when he was you know, there for decades. So that is a, it's a pretty big accomplishment. A lot of people forget, you know, even if they feel it wasn't stolen. But again, you won the first round. You certainly won the second round of Republicans, but and it wasn't even close. Uh, and no one thought that could be done. I remember that at the time, uh, you know, very, very vividly. Um, what do you say to, you know, I'm seeing Mississippi reporters talking about Governor Bryant's uh, comments that your switch was opportunistic. Um, that you're just trying you know, to find a way to win. It, it's funny about that. We, um, you know, when I was his Jones County chairperson, when he ran for lieutenant governor, huh. he didn't think I was opportunistic then. <laughs> when, when, when I stood for him in, in, the, in the chamber and fought for his agenda, was, was his top lieutenant in the chamber. For four years, he didn't think I was opportunistic then. When I filed a lawsuit against Obamacare to render it unconstitutional because our state attorney general did not, and he was my client in that lawsuit, he didn't think I was opportunistic then. When I helped him get to governor, when I helped him campaign door to door, every other way, he didn't think I was opportunistic then. You know what he thought it, Daniel? When he finally met with Mitch McConnell, they had a dinner one night during the Seventh Union, and that's when all of a sudden I became opportunistic. Well, that's the problem. Mitch McConnell doesn't have any right to be down here telling us who to vote for or how to behave. And unfortunately, our governor right now is listening to McConnell as opposed to the will of the people. And to be clear, at this point, there is no candidate announcing for the open seat. Not yet. Not yet. We have one Democrat in. One Democrat in. Uh, But but, but Democrats are irrelevant because they know a Democrat's not going to be appointed. I mean, what what, what that tells... Sure. Well, furthermore, the Democrat that's in was this Mike Estes. He was indicted some time ago. He was part of the Clinton administration. So <laughs> it's not as though the Democrats are going to put this suit in play. Ultimately, it's going to be a fight if they if they choose it. If they choose it um, to, to, between two Republicans, and if they bloody me up too much or vice versa, then the Democrat has an outstanding shot. But right now, as things are, if we pull a less, we win this seat easily. We keep the seat 
for the Senate, for the Republicans. Because the way I'm objectively looking at this, and I'm thinking, in terms of op- opportunistic, you have an open seat, and it's. I find it interesting that, I mean, when you have a solid red state, or you know, likewise a solid blue state for, from a Democrat perspective, um, that a seat opens up for the first time in decades. Uh, you know, everyone and their grandmother would run, want to run, and it's very interesting. No one's running, and that tells me that they're all waiting to see who Governor Bryant appoints. And you're not waiting. You're you're willing to put yourself out there. Well, absolutely. Look, I, I work for the people. I'm a conservative. I've been a conservative my entire life. I have the same conservative thoughts and beliefs when I was 18, when I was 25, when I was 35, and now when I'm in my 40s. I'm not going to change that. But I'm not going to wait in line and kiss the ring either. The idea is that this is the people's seat. And that's what we're supposed to be doing is fighting for these principles. Now, if for whatever reason, and look, I want to be clear. I really like Governor Bryant. I consider him a friend, always have. But I guess the better question is, if he's so inclined uh, not to appoint me, and he hasn't met with Mitch McConnell, which, of course, we know he has, then which policy positions does he differ with me on? Hmm. That's, that's part of the million dollar question. I mean, where is the policy so wrong? Where does he disagree? And I think that's a conversation Mississippians would love to have as well. And, and to transition into that in terms of policy, so, you know, a lot of times when you have, you know, conservative grassroots candidates, they're often new, they're coming out of nowhere. You have a lot of legislative experience. You've been right. in the state Senate for what, 14 years? Uh, 11. 11 years. Okay. 11. O- overshot that there, but 11 years. Um, yeah. what, what have you done in the legislature you're most proud of? What lessons have you learned? What are the obstacles you feel that you find with the establishment Republicans there? And what are you trying to take to the United States Senate? All really good questions. You know, the, the most proud moment, I think, was in 2010. You might recall that a few years before that, the Supreme Court handed down the Kelo decision, and it really perverted the public use doctrine to where it could be abused. And essentially, the court held that a person could take uh, property from another and then grant it to a third party, uh, if that third party perhaps could, could use it better than the first party, that is, uh, with tax revenue or whatever. You know the decision well. Well, Mississippi decides to implement some reform in that regard. We were going to make sure that it remained only, that its eminent domain remained only for a pure public use, actual public use, a traditional public use. And we began the uh, process. Well, Haley Barber fought me on that. And that was Really, one of my first wake-up calls at the establishment was not really in this game for principles, that it was really mostly about power. And we fought very aggressively on that. And uh, I attempted to override his veto. And um, he was able to beat us by only two votes, um, but it caused a split still to, to, that exists in the, to this day. Later, we went to the people. We passed a constitutional referendum and placed the reform issue on the ballot. And we won with 75% of the votes from Mississippians how the reform they asked for. That was probably one of my proudest moments. There have been other accomplishments. But I will tell you, you asked about challenges as well. Being a conservative in the middle of um, an establishment-controlled Senate. In 14, I ran against Senator Thad Cochran. You remember that. It was a heck of a race. Prior to that, I had an incredible history of, of legislative accomplishment. I had been named Legislator of the Year by multiple groups. I had passed uh, dozens of, of, of laws and repealed dozens of laws. It was a really solid record. But as you know, Daniel, when you stand up to the establishment, there's going to be punishment. And so what they began to do in the Senate, if my name was on a bill, they would find ways to pocket veto it with the chairman. 
And the leadership of the party began to kill the pills my name was on. So I had to find new ways to get creative. I had to work through the amendment process, and I had to have other senators introduce my legislation. So it goes back to what you said. Whenever you fight against the power, whenever you push back, they're going to respond. But you've got to be tough enough to still push and stand your ground, even when it hurts. And so far, I've done that, and I was reelected in my state Senate seat with 86% of the vote last time. So 86%. I'm still uh, I'm right where I need to be. So um, could you just elaborate on some of the fights you've, you've dealt with recently? You know, after you come back, you know, there's a bloody civil war in, with that Senate seat. You come back to the state Senate after the campaign. You've been there for a couple of years now, three, three and a half years. Um, I know you're dealing with a big uh, religious liberty bill. I follow closely there to protect conscience rights and private property um, from coercion right. to service, you know, gay events or things like that. Um, what are some of the things you've been working on and been fighting with the establishment on? Oh, my goodness. You name it. Right. In large respect, sometimes the best way to be an effective senator is to be on defense, and that is to kill their bills behind the scenes or to kill their bills with procedural issues as best we know how. In Mississippi, a lot like the rest of the country, we have a strong Republican legislature and strong Republican leadership. But notice I said Republican, not necessarily conservative. And there's super, a big super difference majority. now, unfortunately. Super majority. <laughs> right, right. So one would think that if that's the case, we ought to be just pushing the envelope on conservative reform. But instead, we're still growing the, the scope and size of government. In fact, we have um, movements within our own party. They're attempting to raise taxes on Internet sales. They're trying to raise taxes on gasoline. They're trying to raise taxes on cigarettes. They're trying to raise taxes through the imposition of a lottery. And so we find ourselves, if we are the Republicans we claim to be, the idea of any tax increase should be reprehensible. If we're the Republicans we claim to be, the idea of growing government should be reprehensible. But they do it. Furthermore, we had we had millions of dollars to the debt every year via the bond process. And, they, and yet they claim with a straight face that they're balancing the budget. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so we have all of these things we fight for. And so far behind the scenes, we've been able to kill a lot of that mess just by exposing the nonsense. I'm just tired of Republicans campaigning like conservatives and then voting like Democrats. And people need to hear when they betray our principles. And when they hear it, we can give them to scale back some of this uh, hypocrisy. So, so, so far, so good. You know, I find it funny that uh, the political class uses the, stat, the um, Commerce Clause of the Constitution as a means of the federal government doing everything imaginable. But then the one yeah. proper – uh, you, you know, just application of that clause, of the Commerce Clause, which is that states shouldn't be tyrannical to other states, taxation without representation, imposing a sales tax on buyers in other states. Somehow everyone's OK with that now. Somehow yeah, you know. it was like, let the states decide, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of like with sanctuary Funny. cities. Our, our Commerce Clause jurisprudence is absolutely the most disingenuous line of cases I've seen in a long time. And, you know, obviously, we all know precisely what the founders meant with the Commerce Clause. But, you know, the feds wanted more power. They wanted to find a provision that granted them this basically unlimited reach on power. So they built inference on top of inference on top of inference. And finally, they were regulating wholly interstate conduct as long as it may have interfered with something from the outside of the state. So, you know, that's the other thing. It's time to bring this Constitution back down to within its original boundaries. We can't do that with lip service. We can't do that by uh, with, with slip communication. 
uh, directors and in, in press releases. It just takes fighters. You got to stand up, be heard, and hold Republicans accountable. If we hold our party accountable, we have the avenue by which to effectuate change, but not if they're selling us out every day. And right now, one of the primary people selling us out is Mitch McConnell. And um, people say, well, how can you say that? It's clear as a bell. We've gone from Ronald Reagan, as great as he was as being a communicator, to Mitch McConnell, who almost never articulates conservative messages. He almost never. Uh, talks about the things that matter uh, to, to, to you and me and others. We've come a long way, and it's, it's, it's been the wrong direction. We need somebody that can articulate these messages and lead these charges, not someone that just compromises with the Democrats every chance you get. You know, one of the things I found the big obstacles to ever shrinking government, and uh, I'm sorry, let me scrap that. We're not shrinking government. Any obstacle to even slowing the rate of growth is that you get the greatest common factor rather than the lowest common denominator of everyone's special interests. So everyone in their state has something that they want to federalize, and then you wind up getting everyone's stuff. So a lot of people I hear say this, look, Daniel, Mississippi, I understand it's a culturally conservative state, but you had people like Thad Cochran there bringing home the bacon, creating a lot of dependency. It's funny, as we're talking, I'm actually seeing that the appropriators in the omnibus bill are pushing for the inclusion of this Mississippi River flood control plant project and money to keep um, the Pascagoula shipyards in the hunt for a contract worth about $3 billion to build uh, polar icebreakers. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, but I'm just seeing that at Mississippi level. They'll say, well, Chris, how are you going to come and run as a fiscal conservative? Uh, don't the people want that? It's a great question. And we, we did just that in 2014, and we won 59% of the Republican vote. The people did want it because they understand that some sacrifices have to be made if we're going to save this republic. They understand that $21 trillion in debt is absolutely unacceptable, especially when you've got 130 more trillion unfunded liabilities that are just on the horizon. Mississippians are proud people. They want to do the right thing, and if you talk to them about doing the right thing, they always invariably come down on the right side. And so, yes, would it hurt somewhat to lose some of these some of this pork? Maybe, maybe not. It might be that it generates a higher economic uh, interest, and, and because we're not crowding out private investors, and because the government actually begins to be proactive in creating an environment that makes us all better off in the long run. But what we do know is, even if there is some slight downward tick, and we have to feel some pain in the short term. It's better we do it right now for the sake of our children and for the sake of our country than to just keep kicking this can down the road. And so Mississippians are very in tune with that argument, and, and, and they don't have a problem making necessary sacrifices if we can save our country. What do, you, what do you say to someone who looks at you and says, all right, so you're one man, one Senate vote out of 100. Right now, there's about 15, 20 important issues where the voice of the people is really not being heard. There's a very small handful, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, a couple others, an issue here, an issue there. Um, they'll be giving voice to our concerns. But by and large, with control of all three branches, there's no, for example, on the omnibus, there's no discussion of defunding Planned Parenthood. There's no discussion of defunding sanctuary cities, or I should say not funding them. Um, there's no discussion over dealing with 
judicial amnesty and these judicial emergencies where the courts are literally suspending immigration law. It's, the question is, maybe, maybe not we'll have gun control. Maybe, maybe not we'll have internet sales tax. Maybe, maybe not we'll have the insurance bailout. But if we don't have it in the omnibus, we'll certainly have it separately. Um, and maybe, maybe not we'll actually codify the judicial amnesty of a district judge um, and have a three-year amnesty. They're literally working on that now. We pluck you out of Mississippi, put you in the Senate over the weekend. Come Monday, what does Senator Chris McDaniel do? The short answer is he fights. Um, and I know politicians say that, and they almost never do, but my record is one of being a fighter. And, and to your point about being isolated and being alone, you know, there was a time in my life when I was younger, I got lost in the woods. And it was, you know, Mississippi has a lot of woods, a lot of acreage, and I was lost. I could not find my way home, and so I was shouting. I was the only voice in the wilderness. I was just shouting. I was crying. Nobody would help me. And then in a few minutes, I heard my dad. And then I heard my mom, then I heard other voices, and my fear turned back into courage. Sometimes it just takes someone to stand there and articulate the message, for goodness sake. Sometimes if a Rand Paul stands on the floor, or Ted Cruz or Mike Lee stands on the floor and they articulate a conservative message, it gains converts. People gain courage. They think maybe we're not alone. Maybe there is a chance. And we use those strong people to hold others accountable. Ultimately, we use them to change the course of history because we change one seat after the other with a strong conservative message. But Daniel, as you know, you can't articulate those messages unless you're willing to fight. Every time we stand in that gap and tell McConnell, no, or tell Reid or Pelosi, no, at least people are hearing the debate. We're not really having debates right now because it seems most of our citizens are afraid to engage in debates. But if you do it in a way that's articulate, I'm telling you, people will come around. When they begin to come around, that's when change is possible. Not to nibble at the edge of, uh, of legislation, not to tweak here and there. Real substantive change once people wake up. And the best thing a U.S. citizen can give somebody is a bully pulpit, mm. a loud, loud microphone. You use that to change the, the, the fabric of the conversation. And when that conversation changes, you take advantage of it. And that's when you change the country. So a lot of our audience, I get these questions all the time. There's this extreme fear complex about quality of candidates. Now, say, yeah. man, this guy's great. I, I, he really shares our values. I get that. But gosh, there's this history where we get these candidates. They, they maybe believe in what we do. They're not good candidates. Some of it's not their fault. Some of it's just terrible lies told about them by the, by the media and the establishment in both parties because everyone hates them. But some of it's true, and they embarrass us, and this and that. So I'm going to – and I told my audience I'm going to ask this to every candidate I have on from now on. You know, mm -hmm. certainly based on very recent history, a lot of people feel jaded and scared to jump in and support someone. Um, it's clear that everyone's going to get a colonoscopy. If you, if you uh, <laughs> challenge the – yeah, that's a political colonoscopy. Everything you've ever done and everything you didn't do yeah. will be put out there. Could you promise this audience that nothing they throw at you um, will be true that you have yeah. done that would, that would betray conservative values – whether it's a financial scam, whether it's infidelity, whether it's some other scandal of, of breaking the law or, or, or morality. Yeah, I absolutely can. And, and I'll tell you something. Nobody, obviously, is perfect. And, and that's one of the things conservatives do. We, we sometimes tend to hold ourselves up, and we should, as being um, a bit more perfect, if you will, than others. And then when somebody 
is flawed. We we exaggerate the flaw, and we typically pile on. Um, you know, but for the grace of God, right? That's how I see it. We're all sinners. However, I can tell you unequivocally that uh, no, there's nothing out there that's going to be uh, so devastating as to cause that type of embarrassment. So, um, but you know, I, it's just really important to clarify that because I get it. I've been in public office now for 11 years. Uh, the years before that, I was a talk radio host, so I've been in public life for 15 years. And um, they, they, they have nothing. They have nothing. They have nothing but um, mean, mean, vile smears, like you heard at the end of 2014 when they called me a, when they called me a racist, for goodness sakes. But um, that's all they've got. You know, when um, most candidates run against the establishment of both parties, they wind up getting destroyed by hook or by crook. And you often don't see them running again. You're running a second time. Obviously, it was a very different situation like we started out with. What have you learned just mechanics-wise from your first campaign that you think you could do better this time? Oh, so much. So much. And if you've seen the initial rollout, you've seen that we've improved dramatically. And there's a reason for that improvement. You know, you think about our position in 2013 when I was considering running against a guy like Thad Cochran, who was essentially like Elvis Presley in our state. He was just a, this impossible person to, to defeat. And I would call around Daniel, or I would, I would try to talk to people about being campaign managers or, or consultants or fundraisers, and I was probably told no a hundred times. And the, the conversation was always the same conversation. It was that, hey, we like what you're trying to do, but you, A, you can't win, and B, if you, if you do lose, and you will, it will end my career. Not only me, Chris, politically, but the people who worked for me. So what we did, we just cobbled together some some amateurs in 2015 and um, got after it. We worked hard and uh, we were successful, but there are better ways to be successful. And what we have now are people that are more professional. And uh, and I want to be clear, I'm not blaming anyone for what happened in 2014 uh, for, for what occurred. Ultimately, that was my fault and my fault alone. So I'm not suggesting that anybody that was working with me was problematic. I'm just suggesting that uh, I messed up and we were victims of circumstances to a certain extent. But now we've been down that path. And Daniel, there's something about fighting a war, right? You, you realize that once you step on a few landmines, you know where not to step next time. <laughs> it's like that in politics. And in 2014, we stepped on a whole bunch of landmines. We know where they are now. We know how the press is going to twist things and behave now. We know the establishment is vicious. We underestimated their veracity. Oh, yeah. We underestimated their evil in 2014. We really did. We didn't. We thought they would do some bad things. We didn't think they would do what they did. So um, we've learned to be tougher, smarter, more aggressive, uh, but also um, how to message our, 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 our team uh, much better. So we're just a whole different candidate now, a whole different group, and we're prepared for battle wherever it is. So the other thing is, in addition to conservatives typically being lousy campaigners, because we're good at you know about talking about the Constitution, talking about the law, talking about the issues, um, which you know sadly that that should be the most important thing, and unfortunately it's the least important thing. Uh, the other thing we're not good at is raising money. And my question is to you is, how do you solve the enigma of, on the one hand, a big part of the problem we have in politics today is. That, for example, healthcare is a great example we talk about on this show all the time. That it's not a matter of how much you want to help the poor. It's that most of the government programs are funneled through managed care, through the insurance cartel, the healthcare cartel, um, that is absolutely not a free market. 
and they are the most prolific donors. But you know, it's many yeah. other industries are like that too. How do you straddle, you know, the fact that we want to go after these cartels, but then how do you raise enough money to win? It makes it tough. And I'll give you some examples since I've been kind of on both sides of this equation over the last 11 years. You know, before, before I finally peered behind the veil, uh, kind of like Dorothy at the Wizard of Oz, and I saw what I saw, and, and I realized that we weren't just Republicans versus Democrats, that we actually were various factions and that many members of our party were actually Democrats in disguise and, and that they really were for big government and big spending. And it, it really shocked me. And so I began to push back. And when I began to push back, that's when my fundraising began to get more difficult because prior to that, I mean, God listen, prior to that, fundraising was as simple as making a couple of phone calls. <laughs> it's, hard to it's hard to explain to people if, if, they, if they have you in line and they, they, they have you controlled, you can make a couple of phone calls and raise $100,000 pretty quickly. But once you push back against the machine, those avenues are exhausted. And then we run against that conference, and even additional avenues in state were exhausted. It's, it, it's kind of a curse. It, it, we say we want fighters. We want insurgents. We want conservatives. That's what we say. But when somebody finally stands up and does it, then the establishment <laughs> cuts them away. off. <laughs> we all run away, right? It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So um, if you want fighters, you have to understand that when we engage inside of our states, that the traditional money at that stage is no longer available to yep. us. And that's when we have to look outside of the state to other sources for people that have the guts and the courage to, to insist that change is made. But, you know, it's funny, if you, if you just throw us out there without the armor and without the shield and without the sword, uh, ultimately we do get defeated and we say, oh, shucks, what should we have done? Well, the answer is you should have engaged. Yep. You should have helped that poor soul that was struggling. <laughs> and, um, and that's how you get it done. But, Thankfully, we've been pretty successful in raising money, thanks to Robert Mercer and Mr. Uline and others that have generated some money for a pact that's down here in Mississippi. But at the same time, you know, the campaigns need money, too. And um, any way you guys could help, man, McDaniel2018.com, McDaniel2018.com. And that's, um, that's a big part of what we're doing here. So McDaniel2018.com. And yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've experienced that trying to help or recruit candidates. I had this with a candidate in Oklahoma one time. He said a lot of people actually liked me, but small business owners said, look, you know, I, I sympathize with you, but I can't be caught dead um, <laughs> donating to you, which is it's actually really funny because the left is very into disclosure. They have what's called a Disclose Act. And to make sure more and more people, you disclose the, the evil money in politics. But it's the reality is it actually hurts more the grassroots trying to fight the system, the little guy. Um because everyone's scared of the big guy. No one's scared to donate to the big guy. They're scared to donate to the little guy. You know, it, it, you're right. It's a really strange system. And my situation is, is really different in that a lot of times we'll run candidates in states. And it's their first race. And so naturally, it's very difficult to raise money because it is their first race. And I kind of get that. You know, this would be my fifth race. And um, we've never had trouble raising money until I kick back versus the establishment. So I once had the coffers. I once had the money. I cut that off to fight for conservatives. And then it's funny, conservatives look at me and say, well, aren't you raising money? My answer is, well, I've been fighting for you. I mean, I had the money you wanted me to have, but I had to sacrifice my soul to keep it. And now that I've stopped sacrificing my soul, you guys won't help me because I can't raise money. <laughs> so it's kind of a, you put some of us, some of these groups put us in a weird, in a weird box. 
And uh, all I'm suggesting is, is that you can't have both. If you want fighters, they are going to lose their in-state support. If you um, and you got to help them if you want them to win. And they they've proven they can win because, like I said, I'm I'm four and one so far. <laughs> I'm four and one, and the one I lost, I feel like I won it. So, um, sure, you know, it was a heck of a fight. What What is your game plan if? Trump comes in and opposes you, you know, if, if Bryant cooks up some candidate, tells Trump that, look, you know, this guy is going to lose the seat for you. You got to support my guy. Um, yeah. We saw this particularly, as you mentioned, with Mo Brooks, that Mo was actually, you know, a conservative fighter in the House, but he didn't have yeah. a lot of name ID throughout the state. A lot of people never heard of him. And they just, you know, ran literature against him saying he's a Pelosi, never Trump guy. Right. Um, and they're going to try that here. There's no question about that. Because, you know, naturally, there was a very contentious primary process there in 2016, and uh, nobody had, nobody originally, or very few people originally picked that candidate, Donald Trump, to, to be successful. So they're going to do whatever they can to try to twist and turn things and lie about records. And here's what you do. We recognize, I think most people that are in tune recognize that Trump is being forced in some respects by McConnell to cut these deals. Otherwise, there's no way a Trump endorses Mitt Romney, right? I mean, give me a break. Mitt Romney was probably as hateful and aggressive toward Trump as any person has been, but Trump ended up endorsing him in Utah. So we know that Trump is having to play these games. He's forced by McConnell to play these games. Our position would be to the people in Mississippi, if you want him not to have to play these games, then change the Senate. And if you change the Senate, then all of a sudden you can see progress. Until that, it's going to be more game plan. Yeah, sure. And I know we're running out of time. Just got yeah. a couple quick, uh, quick questions down the line that we'll, we'll let you go and, uh, and sew this interview up. Um, last time, I remember once this race became competitive, we figured, wow, now we're going to have a big philosophical debate within the party, played out by proxy in Mississippi, what sort of Republican Party are we going to be? You know, we're going to be a big spending, big government um, party that doesn't stand up for Article One powers and, you know, for proper federalism. Or are we going to be, you know, basically whatever the Democrats are at any given moment, just, you know, one jog to the right on, on a couple of issues. And instead, what happened was, and this seems to happen every time, it always boils down to the oppo dirt they dig up, and then some event that happens, and then that consumes the race. And I remember last time, starting in May, so you had this nursing home scandal with Clayton yeah. Kelly, a blogger who supported you, um, was arrested for breaking into the nursing home where uh, Thad Cochran's former wife was uh, was living and videotaped her, um, and he was arrested and served jail time. So what do you say to those that are going to come out you know, this campaign run ads, Chris McDaniel's campaigns said you know, Chris was there with the camera, uh, shameless guy videotaping uh, someone who wasn't well in a nursing home. Right. Well, you know, we, we condemned it immediately, harshly, as, as harshly as it can be condemned. But more importantly, since the end, here's what we know. Every prosecutor that's been involved in that case, every uh, police officer that's been involved in that case, and every defendant that was indicted or at least charged in that case, every one of those people have claimed now publicly that the campaign had absolutely no connection to it. In fact, one of the conspirators claimed that they intentionally 
didn't tell anybody associated with the campaign because they knew we would have checked. They went, he said they went rogue or they just did their own thing. And that's the bottom line. We've been uh, cleared by every conceivable person. And um, I guess they can try the fleas, but the reality is is that the, the record has just this mess, has just this mess right once and for all. Well, yeah, I mean, they definitely, it will be about this. Like you said, hey, Governor Bryant, what issue do you agree with, do, do you disagree with me on? I can tell you it's not going to be about the issues. Um, that, that's for sure. They, they can never debate the issues. So it will be about um, scandals and, and, and oppo hits. And, you know, we, you know, definitely are, are going to be watching out for that. Before I let you go, um, yeah. another question I promised uh, my audience I'd asked, uh, they're all plugged into this because of my book. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, you could be a senator and you have Article 1 power. So you get up there. Pick the 10 things you want to do, and every single one will be, quote-unquote, struck down by the courts. Would you tell this audience that if you were to get up there, you will finally be that man who will not just talk about so-called nominating better judges, but will actually use Article 1 and Article 3, Section 2 powers to reclaim congressional power yeah. of the courts. Yeah, no question about it. The, uh, in another life, I was a federal law clerk for a federal judge, so I've, I've, I'm ah. very uh, comfortable with um, with these those mechanisms. I'm very comfortable in telling you that the federal courts have way too much power, way too much authority, and it has to be taken away. And furthermore, these justices that continue to violate intentionally this, this Constitution, they, they should be impeached. And so we find ourselves in a unique position as, as conservatives we can't keep passing the buck to the federal judiciary. At some point, we have to accept responsibility that we've allowed that branch to stray too far from its original purpose and then bring it back under the umbrella. And that just has to be done if we're serious about changing the country. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, that was Senator Chris McDaniel. And uh, what is your website again in case people want to find out more about your campaign? Yeah, McDaniel2018. Just, uh, that's all. Just McDaniel2018.com. We'd love to see you. McDaniel2018.com, and we'll definitely discuss this more as this race progresses. And there you have it, folks. That was State Senator Chris McDaniel running for the open seat being vacated by Thad Cochran. Until next time, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.